Where? Where was that? What's that? Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock, yeah. 1629. Is that about it? Close. The Mayflower, children. And so they, they, they celebrated this feast of Thanksgiving. Actually, about 80 years before <laughs> that, there was a Thanksgiving mass offered in Florida, in St. Augustine, where the, they call it Augustine, right? St. Augustine, uh, Florida. When the Spanish came over, they met up with the Native Americans and they invited them to see what was going on in the Catholic liturgy. They offered a mass of thanksgiving. Because really the word Eucharist means thanksgiving. So when we think of thanksgiving, we think of cranberry sauce and turkey. But for us, thanksgiving is really bread and wine which becomes the body and blood of Jesus. And so we call it the Lord's Supper because it's in connection to the Last Supper. We also call it the breaking of the bread. The Jewish rite of breaking of the bread was part of the Passover liturgy. We'll get into the Passover here in a minute. And we say at Mass, blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, through your goodness. This prayer that we say at Mass is actually taken from the Jewish liturgy of the breaking of the bread. I don't know many Catholics who say, hey, um, I'm going to go to the breaking of the bread. It's not a common term we say, but we can say it. We also call it a sacrifice. Okay, The holy sacrifice makes present of the one sacrifice as Christ, as well as the offering of the church. So it is the sacrifice of Calvary. St. Paul, and the scholars could probably correct me, in his letters to Hebrew... Um, there's a debate whether or not St. Paul wrote it, but I personally think he did. Uh, but in his letter to the Hebrews says, there is no need to offer sacrifice day after day. There was one sacrifice offered once, and that was Jesus Christ on the cross. So why do we have to offer up a sacrifice every day? Is that contrary to what the Hebrews says? Well, we would say this one act 2,000 years ago is being made again present. Because the question we could ask ourselves, is God outside of time or not? And if the answer is yes, he's outside of time, and God is everywhere, he is omnipresent, if ever-present everywhere, he can be present here, outside of time, and this one sacrifice is a continual sacrifice of the Mass, or the sacrifice at Calvary. We also call it Holy Communion. Because by it, we are united to Jesus. Communion means in unity with something. So you are united with people that you love. You're in community with your family. You're united with your spouse. And so we call it uh, Holy Communion. And so it is the time in which, you know, when the girls wear their dress for First Communion. I remember that, Anna. You wear white because you are a symbol of the church. You are a bride and you're in union with your spouse, Jesus. And how does spousal unity come about? You take your vows, right? You take your vows on your wedding day, but it's the, the marriage is not complete until it's consummated. The one flesh union, the two become one. This is why if you go to St. Peter's in uh, the Vatican, they have what's called a baldacchino. There's this little thing, I wish I had a picture of it. It goes over the altar, 
And it was a symbol that the Jewish people, when they got married, they entered into a covenant. They got married underneath this tent-like thing that was called a baldacchino in Italian. So the church used this Jewish symbolism and put it over the altar to say, where we, the bride of Christ, meet our spouse is the one flesh union in holy communion. Uh, we'll talk about the Mass here in a few weeks. Um, so sometimes people say, I'm going to Mass. And it comes from the last word, the sending forth. You have a mission. Now that you receive Jesus, you are called to go out into the world, to bring him to others. Um, anyone here ever read Brent Petrie's book, The Jewish Roots of the... A couple of you... Um, highly recommend it. Um, Brent Petrie was a Protestant minister who converted, and he very good biblical scholar, especially in the Hebrew. And so he looks at all the things from the Old Testament, and he points to how it, it is a foreshadowing, or as we heard um, Vern and Chad talk about, talk about scripture, uh, type, typology. It's a foreshadowing of what really is going to happen in the New Covenant. Okay, so, um, actually, Brent did not point this, this part out. This is um, something different. But um, in the Garden of Eden, there's two trees, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which they pluck the fruit from. Original sin comes, and all hell breaks loose, literally. And there's a tree which brings about eternal life, the tree of life. What do you think the tree of life symbolizes? The cross. So the cross is the new tree of life, but what are the fruits from the cross? What's the fruit from the new tree of life? It's Holy Communion. It's the Eucharist. Okay. Also, we see, you know, I've heard of this guy named Melchizedek. We hear this word said um, in the liturgy of the Eucharist. Uh, Melchizedek in Hebrew literally means righteous king. And no one knows where this guy comes from. He's like, he comes from nowhere. He's like, okay, he's the king of Salem. We know where he's the king of, the king of peace, Shalom, which will become Jerusalem. But there's no real lineage. Melchizedek comes out, and who does he give bread and wine to? Abraham, okay? So he gives Abraham, he blesses him, and he blesses him by bringing him bread and wine, a foreshadowing of the Last Supper, a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of the Mass. Okay, what happened at the Passover? Who was led out of Egypt? Yeah, the Hebrews, right? The Israelites. How many plagues were there? Ten. Ten. What was the last plague? Angel of death. Mm -hmm. The firstborn was to die. Okay, Today we celebrate the feast day of the presentation of Jesus in the temple. Jesus had to be redeemed. Basically, you brought your firstborn son to the temple, and you had to give them, if you were wealthy, which you would give them a bull. If you were upper middle class, a lamb. If you were lower middle class, pigeons and turtle doves, and if you were really poor, you would give them grain offerings. 
Okay, so you would present them into the temple and buy them back. Jesus was offered two turtle doves or two pigeons, which in those days was about five shekels. Five shekels is equivalent to about $1.75 today. So buying back Jesus, Lord of the universe, for $1.75, pretty good deal. <laughs> uh, yeah. Could you go back to Melchizedek uh-huh. for a second? How are we to think of him? I mean, you know, like you say, he's kind of shrouded in mystery here. What What's the most important thing that we should take away in terms of thinking about him? What, what does he symbolize, I guess? Well, so he, his name literally means righteous king from Jerusalem. So it's a foreshadowing that the, the, the um, covenant is going to be established in Jerusalem. Okay. It's going to be the temple. So we know that. And then we know that he came to bless Abraham, and he did it with bread and wine. Is, um, he, a, is he an agent of God? Is he like an angel? Oh, or yeah. A, I mean, is that that he's qualified to bless Abraham? I mean, is, mm-hmm. is he like a messenger from God? To provide that blessing is that is that how he should be thought of yeah um we see all through the salvation history people that aren't part of the chosen race uh-huh. playing a part in salvation history i mean you think of tamar um you know, or rahab mm-hmm. um and so um but i don't know if you want to shed more light on well the, the key biblical chapter here would be hebrews okay. chapter seven okay so chapter seven in hebrews will develop how Christ is after the priesthood of Melchizedek, who comes from nowhere and mm-hmm. goes nowhere. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like he always was, was and always, always will be. And, oh, okay. Yeah. But Hebrews seven then develops the connections okay. that are beautiful. Right. Very beautiful. Okay, so thank one you. One of my colleagues, Josh Burks, it's I think it's his favorite chapter in scripture. It is just so beautiful. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Ryan. It's always good to find a friend. <laughs> okay, so uh, the Passover. So what happens is, right, the, the firstborn child is, is going to die. And so in order to save your family from this tenth plague, you had to do two things, right? You had to gather all your family and friends into one place to offer up prayers and supplications to be saved by slaughtering a what? A lamb. And then you had to do what? You had to take the blood... Put it on the doorpost, the lintel, and then you had to eat the lamb. Okay, all Christians would agree that in order to be saved from death, we have to um, uh, the lamb had to be sacrificed, which is Jesus. But not all Christians agree that you actually have to consume the lamb of God. Okay, so we'll get to that in a minute. Um, okay, let's Exodus sixteen. I get a volunteer to read this. Thank you. Lord spoke to Moses and said, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, in the evening twilight you shall eat flesh, and in the morning you shall have your fill of bread, so that you may know that I, the Lord, am your God. In the evening quail came upon or came up and covered the camp. In the morning, a dew lay all about the camp, and when the dew evaporated, there on the surface of the desert were fine flakes, like hoarfrost on the ground. On seeing it, the Israelites asked one another, What is this manna? For they did not know what it was. But Moses told them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. 
Good. Thank you. So we see God bringing his people out of slavery by the sacrifice of the lamb. They had to eat the lamb. They cross into the desert. Their, their enemies are washed away. The Red Sea is a symbol of baptism, which we discussed here uh, last week. And then they go into the desert, but they're grumbling. They're hungry. They need to be fed. And so God rains down this bread, and they're like, what is it? That's literally what the word manna means. Manna means, what is it? And so this is a, is a symbolism and a type for us, too, because we also were in slavery. Um, Satan had us bound, but the sacrifice of Jesus released us. We go through the waters of baptism, the Red Sea, and now we are pilgrims in the desert. And you ever get hangry? Right? And you're like, God, why? Why did you bring us here? Well, we needed to be fed. And so we needed to be fed daily. And that's why Jesus says in the Our Father, you know, give us this day our daily bread. Okay? So the bread that comes down from heaven is really him himself in which he desires to give all mankind um, in the holy sacrifice of the Mass when we receive communion. You guys ever heard the song Panis Angelicum? Panis, pan means bread. And so, the bread of angels. So where's this, where's this phrase come from? Okay. In the book of wisdom, in the Septuagint, the book of wisdom in, in the, the Greek Old Testament, says, you, Lord, have given your people the bread of the angels. Okay. Now, does that mean angels can actually receive communion? No. It means that it was the bread that rained down from heaven, but the angels were constantly looking upon it. Okay. Angels do not have bodies, so they couldn't eat manna. Angels do not have bodies, so they can't eat Jesus. They can't consume Communion. St. Maximilian Kolbe once said, if angels could be jealous, which they can't, but if angels could be jealous of us, it would be for two things, that we as humans can suffer and we as humans can actually receive Jesus into us. Okay, once, once they get into the Holy Land, they cross the Jordan, they set up the kingdom, then they've got to build this temple. And Solomon builds the temple. And they're like, well, we should actually have the bread of presence. We should have these 12 loaves to remind ourselves that God fed us. So the name of the 12 loaves, the unleavened bread that were displayed in the temple, they symbolized the covenant between God and the 12 tribes, and they came from the bread's nearness to the presence of the Lord. The bread was placed on a golden table in the holy place just outside of the Holy of Holies. Every Sabbath, the loaves were replaced with fresh bread. The old loaves were eaten by the priest. So, e even to this day, you know, we refresh the Eucharist every week with a number of people, taken from the Old Testament, in a way. Um, Brent Petrie points this out in his book, which is really profound and beautiful. Um, the three major Jewish feast days, the priest would go in there, and he would grab a loaf, and he would hold it up. And he would tell the people, Behold God's 
love for you. Just to remind you, remember what he did for you in Egypt, but then he also fed you in the desert? Behold God's love for you. So every time when at Mass, the priest holds up the Eucharist and says what? Behold the Lamb of God. In a way saying like, behold God's love for you. Look what Jesus has done for us. Okay, so from the Old Testament we see uh, five things. Uh, redemption through eating the fruit of the tree of the life, garden. We see the salvation by eating the Passover lamb, Exodus. The blood of the covenant which cleanses sins, binds the covenant, and leads to a communion meal with God himself. We see the daily bread of angels from, come down from heaven, the manna, and the bread of the presence which sat before the face of God. That's what Vernon's talking about which was sacrificed by the priest and which the priest ate before God. So we see all these foreshadowings in the Old Testament. Okay, so we see in the New Testament the multiplication of loaves. You know, they're hanging out. Jesus is a rock star. There's a lot of people. And like, uh, we need some food for all these people. And the apostle's like, we're going to find enough food. And the little boy's like, I got five loaves and two fish. And so Jesus... More, he, he orders the crowd to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looks up to heaven, blesses and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the 12, full of the broken pieces left over. Why do you think that they were satisfied? You ever see that, um, you know, that Super Bowl commercial? Um, this was about ten years ago, and they're playing football, and the guy's dropping the balls, and and the, the, his buddies are harassing. You're playing like Betty White out there, and then it is Betty White, and then they hand him the Snickers, and it says, you know, you're not you when you're hungry. Snickers, it satisfies. So they're satisfied because this is the new manna that's come down from heaven, not just like. I've got my fill of my stomach. But there's something deeper here. In, in the Greek word, the, the satisfying word is like, we found our hearts longing. Okay. There are four verbs that Jesus does here, and we'll talk about this when we talk about the Mass. These are the same verbs that we'll see at the Last Supper. The same words that are at the liturgy of the Eucharist. Jesus takes the bread, so we give our offering to God. Jesus takes it, he blesses it, breaks it, and then gives. Okay? A little side note, we don't have any, we got one acolyte in here, uh, Blake. This says here that um, he, gives the he gives the loaves to the disciples and the disciples give them to the crowd. So that's why we have like acolytes or other ministers to actually give to people, but the acolytes can't actually just take from the altar. They actually literally have to be given the saborim, the gold thing, to give to the people because it's a symbolism of Jesus given and then eventually it's multiplied that way. That's a little, for any of you liturgists out there. Okay, so the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves, when the Lord says the blessing breaks and distributes the loaves through the, his disciples to feed the multitude, prefigures the superabundance of this unique bread of his Eucharist. 
So then we get the bread of life discourse, this course. Um, bread of life is found in John chapter 6. Okay. Jesus oftentimes uses this Greek verb to eat, estio. Like, what, remember, like, I, I love the story when he heals uh, or when he raises the, the dead little girl back to life. Remember Jar- Jarius' um, daughter? And he brings her back like, you should probably give her something to eat. Like, just like common sense, right? But yeah, give her something to eat. Well, he uses this word in that sense, estio, something to eat. And this could also be taken symbolically. Maybe she needs to, you know, eat more of the, um, the word of God or something, you know, something symbolic. But in verse 54 of chapter 6, the word changes to trago. Okay, we'll go through um, John 6 here, which literally means to chew or to gnaw. So Jesus is not speaking figuratively. He intends literally that his disciples should eat his body and drink his blood. Now, were Jews forbidden to eat human flesh? Could Jews drink any blood? Could they have like German blood sausage? No, it was, it was against the law. Okay. Was Jesus ever a lawbreaker? Oh, yeah. Okay, so let's walk through um, John chapter 6. And we could ask ourselves this question. Is the Eucharist important for, for salvation? John chapter 6. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the desert, but they died. But this bread that comes down from heaven, so as one may eat it, may not die. I am, no one says when he says I am, right? He's God. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh and for the life of the world. The Jews quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said, Well, just in case you missed it, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. How many times does he say eat there? Trogo, right? Quite a bit. Jesus repeats himself. We never see our Lord repeating himself this much in all of Scripture. And the reason he does is because it's hard for them to believe this. I mean, you're going to break the law, and you're also, I'm like, eh, I don't know. It seems kind of disgusting to eat your body. Okay? So they don't quite understand yet. And as a result of this, many of his disciples returned to their former way of life. If Jesus said, no, I'm just speaking figuratively, um, I don't really mean that. Literally, come back, you know, salvation's important, I am the way, the truth, and life. Um, let me explain this more to you. But he doesn't. He lets them go. They can't grasp it. And so Jesus looks at his apostles and says, hey, do you want to leave me too? No, Master, you have the words of eternal life. To whom shall we go? We have come to believe 
and are convinced that you are the Holy One of God. So is the Eucharist important for salvation? Yeah. It's the sacrifice. It's the Passover. Okay, then we get on to the New Testament, uh, the Last Supper. And so we see Jesus fulfilling the Last Supper, uh, or fulfilling the Passover. And you can read um, Scott Hahn's book, um, the the Lamb Supper. Yeah, um, and he points in there, and he just he talks he talks a lot about the Jewish roots of the Passover and the four different cups. And you see the Gospel of Luke and how Jesus drinks three different cups at different times, but he doesn't drink the fourth one until when, after he dies on the cross. They bring the wine, the vinegar wine, soaked on a hyssop branch, and they put it up to him, and he says. It is finished. Consummate the mist. It's consummated. Okay. And as Vern pointed out earlier, when Jesus says, do this in memory of me, he's looking back at the Jewish Passover. Thanks, teacher. Uh, St. Ignatius of Antioch, they abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they confess not the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ which suffered for our sins, and which the Father of his goodness raised up again. Thank you. So, St. Ignatius of Antioch, who was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of St. John, who wrote what we just read, the Gospel of John, chapter 6. So, he is a bishop in Antioch. He is the one that first turned the coin, the, the, the term um, Catholic. Um, he also says, let no one get married without the permission of the bishop. Um, but he emphatically says, hey, there are some problems within our community because some of you don't really believe that it's truly the body and blood of Christ. Okay, there's a statistic that says about 80% of, no, sorry, um, 70, 75% of Catholics don't believe in the true presence of Jesus. They think it's just a symbol. You guys ever um, um, heard of Flannery O'Connor? Flannery O'Connor, um, Irish wit. She was a great short essay writer um, about 60, 70 years ago. Um, she was with some of her Protestant friends, all these other writers, and they were talking about communion. One was Anglican, and one was Lutheran, one was Presbyterian. And they're just like, well, this, just, this is just a symbol of the Last Supper, and it reminds us what Jesus did for us. But it's not really Jesus. And her response was, if it's not Jesus, hell with it. Right? If it's not, if it really isn't Jesus, the hell with it. And what, I mean, it sounds kind of blasphemous to say, but it's, it's like there's no middle ground here. Um, one of my mentors was Curtis Martin, the founder of Focus. And he had um, left the, the, the faith when he was in college. And he started coming, he started coming to the Catholic <coughs> Church and he was brought into adoration. And he said... I have two options here. I either have to get down on my knees and recognize that's Jesus, or I have to get all these people out of here because they're idol worshipers. They're worshiping a piece of bread. He's like, I had to actually come to the conviction I have to do one of two things, and both were going to be hard because it's hard for me to believe that that's Jesus, but it's also going to be hard for me to get them all out of here. <laughs> so, um, yeah, if it's, if it's not the Lord, to hell with it. 
Anna, can you read for us, please? When therefore the mingled water and wine cup and the manufactured bread receives the word of God and the Eucharist of the blood and the body of Christ is made, language of change, transformation, presence, from which things, things the substance of our flesh is increased and supported. How can they affirm that the flesh is incapable of receiving the gift of God, which is eternal life, which flesh is nourished from the body and blood of the Lord and is a member of him? Thank you. So what I want to do is just kind of show you, um, in understanding our faith, we could understand it from three different lenses, from sacred scripture, from tradition, these are the church fathers, in antiquity, this is what ancient Christians believed, and then also what the church teaches, the magisterium. So it's what we call the, the three stools of doctrine. Okay. So the Blessed Sacrament... Jesus gives us, in receiving this, sanctifying grace. Remember, he said, apart from me, you can do some things. Apart from me, you can do all things. No, apart from me, you can do nothing. So, he gives us sanctifying grace. The, it also draws the person receiving it into the greatest possible union with Christ. Intimacy. I think I told that to uh, one of the first weeks um, when I had a conversion to Christ. It was that I understood that I was going up and receiving communion every single Sunday, but I didn't know the Lord, so I asked the Lord, do I have a personal relationship with you? And he said, no, you have something more. As a Catholic, you have intimacy. And right now, you're an unfaithful spouse. And I'm like Hosea the prophet again. Um, next, it bestows strength to fulfill the duties and responsibilities of one's state of life. I see so much hope like people who come here for every Sunday or people come on daily mass. As they come to receive communion, it gives them the grace to be a better wife, to be a better husband, to be a better child or a better parent or to be a better employee in your work. So it helps sustain and fulfill the responsibilities of one's life. It gives strength to the dying as I journey home, as I just gave communion to Bob O'Gara. Um, you know, it was a beautiful, like Bob, um, I don't really, didn't really know him that well. I've seen him here, um, but he was a lawyer downtown for many years, but every single day, He'd give up his lunch break to go to daily mass at uh, the old cathedral, St. Mary's down by the Capitol. He'd go there every single day to pray, go to confession, and go to mass. This is a beautiful life. Okay, so for any sacrament, there has to be uh, four things. Uh, the material element, so wheat bread for communion, and grape wine. You can't actually have any additives. You know, it's like with run out of communion wine, you can't just go get a wine cooler. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's... And if other matter is used, the sacrament's invalid. You know, it's it's the sacredness of what's what's actually being presented. So 
Um, so in some places they were using putting honey in the bread. Well, this would taste sweet. People are going to like it better and come back to church. Uh, no, can't do that. The, the words of institution, when the, the point when Jesus enters into the bread and the wine is when the priest says, this is my body, which is given up for you. Okay. And the bells are rung. Because in ancient days, the church might have been so big, or the priest, he's kind of got his back to the people, they can't really see what's going on. So the altar boys who are right there are notifying people, hey, something important is going on. And as humans, we have five senses, and our senses are made to worship God. And so we're hearing something different. The, who can say Mass? <laughs> yeah, you got to be ordained. Okay, only a priest and then a bishop, too. Uh, because they have what's called true sacrament of holy orders. Okay, a deacon cannot celebrate Mass. A deacon can preach, he can, do, he can distribute communion, but he cannot say the words because he does not act in the person of Christ. Yet, he might be ordained to become a priest, but he's not a priest yet. Because it shows um, apostolic succession. Um, so all Catholics and Eastern Orthodox have valid orders. So say you're traveling on a nice cruise to Greece, and you're on there on Sunday, and you're on this little island, and there's no Catholic church, there's only a Greek Orthodox. You can go to Mass there, and you can receive communion. It's, a, it's actually Jesus. Okay. Now, sometimes the Greeks, they're still upset. You know, we sacked um, Constantinople in 1054, and they're still kind of a little upset by it. <laughs> um, they're like, come on, after a thousand years, build a bridge. <laughs> but no, 1054 was the schism. It was after that, sorry. Um, Protestants and Anglican ministers do not, they're not recognized because they're not connected to the apostles. They broke away. And because they broke away... Even if, like, I have a very good friend who's a Lutheran who believes in the true presence of Jesus, but instead of the word transubstantiation, we'll talk about that in a minute, they believe in consubstantiation. It's because of my faith that that is changed. But we, we know, because Jesus instituted this way, when he says, do this in memory of me, when you say these words, this is actually me. So it's, it's not based on our faith. Okay? It's based on what Jesus commanded us to do. So even if I'm a priest and I doubt that that's Jesus, but I say these words and I intend to do what the church... So like I might be struggling in my faith personally, but I still say those words, Jesus still comes. Okay? So it's not based on my holiness or based on my faith. It's based on Christ. So people aren't coming Sunday because of Father Clark or Father Dewar or Worth. They're coming, hopefully, because of Jesus. Okay. So who can receive um, communion? Uh, a baptized Catholic. Uh, one also must be in the state of grace, which means free from mortal sin. And if one receives the Eucharist or any other sacrament, in the state of mortal sin, this is also another sin called sacrilege. Taking something that's sacred and um, desecrating it. Okay. So one must 
be in good standing. Um, so what's this mean um, in good standing? This is looking at it from an objective point of view, not saying, because as a priest, I can't read your soul. Some priests have that gift. It's not one of my gifts, and that's fine. Um, but there is what's also what's called um, objective um, reality in good standing with the faith. So if a person is excommunicated, which means it's actually a medicinal thing to say um, you belong to this organization, which is anti-Christian. You, if you belong and profess this uh, to this organization, you should not present yourself for communion until you renounce that you belong to that organization. Okay, so like Catholics were a free choice or uh, the Masonics, um, things that were very anti-Christian. Uh, so Pope or Pope Pope. Um, Bishop Rushwitz back in probably 1994 listed about eight organizations. If you belong to these, you are automatically excommunicated. We were just notifying you because we want you to repent and come back. Good. The other thing is called interdict. Um, interdict has probably not been used in the last 50 years. That's when a bishop says, um, uh, you guys at St. Peter's got a lot of problems. I'm going to put you under interdict. You guys still have to gather on Sundays, but you can't have any sacraments. No baptisms, no weddings, and it's, it's, it's to call a, a whole community to conversion and repent. Although a lot of people who believed in some of the church, but they were just not acting the right, doing the right things, it was a way to um, interdict is not medicinal um, like excommunication is. It's actually pretty grave. It's even more grave. Um, there's so there may be a chance, no chance of return under interdict. Uh, no, it's usually for a, it's usually for a period, um, and so like I'll I'll give you an example. So this was um, th there's been a couple of churches in the Lincoln Diocese in the history. This is going back about a hundred years ago that were placed under interdict. Um, there was a pastor in a place in small town, and the people loved him, but the bishop was going to move him, and he said, "Nope, I'm not moving," and then the people. The people came to the pastor's defense and they um, said, nope, you're not moving him, Bishop. So the bishop rides uh, a donkey, or no, not a donkey, a oh, uh, um, um, wagon. This is before cars. Dri drives the wagon out to this little town. The people, when he, the bishop goes to meet with the, um, the, the people and the representatives in the community, they steal his wagon and horses. The bishop's got to walk back home. No one likes the, the bishop. And he's like, fine. I'm going to place you under interdict. And this whole time until your pastor resigns. Um, so fortunately, they said that in that year, there were no babies born in that little town that needed baptized, and no one died. So God was still looking out for him. So some of it was, some of it was kind of um, also... Um, cultural, the, the, I, the bishop was Irish and this community was Czech and so they didn't like the Irish and so they were just kind of that, yeah. Can't we all get along, people? Uh, Eucharistic fast. So um, in 1953, Pope Pius X, 12th, sorry, says that you have to only receive, uh, you have to fast for only three hours before communion time. 
So before that, you couldn't eat anything um, from midnight till communion. So if you went to mass like at 11 o'clock like we do, and you haven't ate anything all morning, you know, all the boys were passing out and they were taking beds. When's Charlie going to go down today? <laughs> so, I mean, it's hot. There's no air conditioning. They haven't ate anything. And so, like, well, maybe we should rethink this. So they, they did uh, three hours um, before communion. So if you were going to 11 o'clock church, you know, you couldn't eat anything probably after, say, 8.30 or something. You know, think about mass time. But now in 1983, they changed it to one hour. So, and it's one hour before communion. So if you're going to Sunday Mass, it's really, you can't eat um, or drink any coffee a uh, half hour before Mass. So it's not much of a fast. But it's, it's, it's only to like prepare ourselves to receive the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. If you were going to go see someone important, like the King of England, you probably would want to dress up and prepare yourself. And so... It, it's to, to get our interior life and our exterior life just ready and prepared to go see um, God. Okay, so what happens at Mass? The substance and accidents. You ever heard these two terms? This, this is getting a little bit more philosophical. A substance, the definition of a substance is that what it exists in itself and not in another. So do Paul and Blake have different substances? Yeah, they exist in themselves, but not in another, okay? Accidents are those things which does not exist of itself, but in another as its subject. So, for instance, um, you know, your hair. If, if Blake lost all his hair, is he still Blake? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so his hair color, his hair style, that's all an accident. He's still substantially the same, okay? So you come to know a lot of things by their accidents, you know, the, what something looks like, smells like, tastes like. So what happens at Mass in the Eucharist, the substance is changed, but the accidents stay the same. Okay, so it still smells, looks, and tastes like bread. It still smells and tastes and has the effect of wine. So... We call this trans-across-substance, okay? Substance is changed. The bread and wine is changed in the body and blood of Jesus. St. Ambrose, who was the church father, bishop of Milan, who brought St. Augustine into the church, said, We shall not, by the word of Christ, which was able to make out of nothing, that which was not. We are able to change things, which already are into what they were not. Let that sink in. So, Jesus, Jesus becomes present in his body and blood, soul and divinity at Mass. The sacrifice of Calvary is represented in an unbloody manner. And think about how good a God we have. Like, if there was blood flowing from the altar every week, it would be kind of a mess, and I probably wouldn't have many altar ladies helping clean. And so God, God loves us that he's like, okay, I know you guys are kids, like little kids. You don't want to freak them out. And so he's like, I know you're just little kids, so you can't understand this whole sacrifice thing yet. I'm going to come to you in the appearance of bread and wine. Okay. St. Ambrose's disciple, Augustine, said, 
Thus he is both the priest, referring to Jesus, who offers the sacrifice offered, and he is designed that there should be a daily sign of this in the sacrifice of the church, which being with his body, learns to offer himself through him. So here's a couple additional points. What about intercommunion? Like, what if, what if I am a um, Presbyterian? Um, how come I can't, I, I believe in Jesus, I'm baptized, how come I can't just go up and receive communion? Is, are Catholics, are you being exclusive? Are you not showing Christian hospitality by saying I can't receive communion? Because we could say that even in um, St. Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, talks about husbands and wives, right? And what are they a foreshadowing of? The church. The church and Jesus, right? So, it, I mean, is it pretty exclusive that, you know, I can't take your wife out on a date? Yeah, that's, that's right. You know, she's mine, right? It, we've, we've been united as one. Um, and so I can still talk to your wife. You can still come to church, but you can't actually receive intimacy with Christ until you fully profess it. Okay, so communion symbolizes and affects, and remember its effects, it's efficacious. Communion literally means that I'm in union with all the people who believe, or at least profess, who knows how how everyone all believes, but who at least profess and worship within what the Catholic Church teaches. So when the priest says the body of Christ, the response for the recipient is amen, which is the Hebrew word for words, I believe, right? So for those even Catholics who don't believe it's the body of Christ, they shouldn't come receive him, right? Because you're saying I believe, but you don't actually maybe hold to that um, if you're a Catholic that doesn't believe or maybe a different denomination that doesn't believe. Um, so in a limited way to those non-Catholic churches which have retained valid apostolic succession. So um, we have probably about three or four um, people who um, are Orthodox that are in our parish. And I tell them because you believe in the... Um, apostolic succession, you have valid sacraments, they as Orthodox can receive in the Catholic Church. Other sins, so if someone takes communion um, and if they deliberately violate a sacred person, place, or object, um, that's what we call sacrilege. Uh, so desecration, the Profaning of a sacred person or place or object. Um, so getting back to that, um, what happens if someone's not in the state of grace before communion? You see here St. Paul in his letter. He's like, yeah, uh, whoever receives the body and blood of Jesus unworthily brings further condemnation upon himself. It's very serious. So Paul, Paul is very pastoral and says, hey, you should not come up to receive communion unless you um, are properly prepared. 
Now I made a comment at, or I didn't, I had the readers at Mass make a comment for Christmas, saying, hey, uh, you know, this is what communion is. Those can people who are, you're not Catholic, you can receive a blessing and come forward. But those who decide to leave Mass early, they should not present themselves to communion. Because it's kind of, it's sacrilegious to kind of just take Jesus and go without the final blessing. Of course, so many emails in parish, Father, that doesn't seem very hospitable to you. Why would you say something like that? And I said, well, exactly what St. Paul says. Right. So. Okay, so how did uh, adoration and devotion get started for the Most Holy Eucharist? We have a tabernacle church because, well, I have to go over, like, Bob's dying, and I have to go and get communion. I can't just celebrate Mass real quick and get communion. So we had it uh, for the reasons for the sick and the homebound. And the early church, interesting enough, people were allowed to take communion home after Mass, and then they'd have their own little kind of tabernacle in their house, little niches, because they could have possibly been martyred or, in case of death, and so, but for good reasons, the church says, no, probably shouldn't be having this because Jesus could fall into the wrong hands or um, people doing abuse with it. Um, and so, the second reason why we have a tabernacle is purpose for adoration. Anyone here been to Poland? Yeah, Poland. I'll just tell you this story. There's this town of Lignitsa, Poland, and... This church is on the uh, border of Germany. You were there. All right? You should come up and tell a story. <laughs> I'll tell a story? You were there. I was. And you were there? It's like the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> yeah. You want to tell a story? Sure. What am I telling? Oh. Sorry, I got distracted. Oh. <laughs> so, Lignitsa, Poland. This church in uh, about five years ago, no, well, it was 2000. 2003, so a little longer. The priest at, uh, at Christmas Eve Mass, he dropped the host. And if you drop the host, you, ha you can either consume it right away, you could uh, put it in water and allow it to dissolve, or you can um, put it down what's called a squarium. So he put it in this little ablution cup to let it dissolve. After about three days, he looked and he saw the host had a blood spot in it. Calls up the bishop. Bishop's like, uh, got a problem. It's a, it could be a good problem, but you need to come. So the bishop takes the host, and they send it right away to two different scientists that were secular. And they said they identified the blood was from a Jewish male, you know, doing the DNA test. It was from a Jewish male. There was extra white blood cells in there, so it was under blood that was under the rest. And they could tell that the blood came from the heart. Okay. And even more fascinating, blood type A B, who's universal or universal recipient. Yeah. So A B blood type, universal recipient. And they're like, we looked at the DNA strand. There's only a mother's DNA, the DNA code, but there's no father DNA. There's no paternal DNA. So they couldn't figure that out. Well, we just kind of was like, well, that's because it's the blood of Jesus. He has one mother, Mary, 
conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so you can go to Lignita today and see this um, Eucharistic miracle uh, that just happened a few years ago. And there's, on this video shows about four or five other Eucharistic miracles. They have determined through science, you know, faith and science work together, through science, all these different Eucharistic miracles have the same blood type and they can determine that it's from a Jewish male. Um, so it's pretty fascinating. Um, not to say that um, we need scientific proof, but sometimes God gives us that because we're a little hard-headed. Okay, I'm going to stop there if you have any questions the last five minutes. Yes, Joe. So what Janice brings up is um, the definition um, is called concomitance. So if I chew off Trey's ear, <laughs> am I getting his body or his blood? Both. Both. Okay. So when you receive communion, the body of Christ, the blood's in it. Um, but the priest has yeah. to take both, both species. Yeah. The priest has to drink the chalice because... Um, to show that the sacrifice is complete, the bread and wine. So the catechism does say the um, expression of receiving the precious blood is it's a, full, it's a fuller expression of the Last Supper, because that's what Jesus did. Um, but the communion um, is both the body and blood of Christ. So here we do, um, we do have the precious blood several times a year. You can get it at... Um, Easter Vigil, Holy Thursday, Holy Thursday, Easter Vigil, um, the Feast of Corpus Christi, which is usually in June, um, and then for weddings or any major events that um, first Friday, we could distribute. But practically the reason why they don't distribute, one, um, health, you know, spreading of germs. Second, spills, it's harder to clean up precious blood. If you spill on carpet, you'd actually have to tear out that carpet piece. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, we don't have carpet here um, in the sanctuary. And then also, um, it's uh, uh, the, the, the third reason is just needing more ministers. All right. Um, let's uh, close with uh, a prayer. Uh, the, the, the third reason is just needing more ministers. So. All right. Um, let's uh, close with uh, a prayer. Um. Thank you for listening to this great content from St. Peter Catholic Church. For more content, for other talks, for more information, please visit St. Peter Catholic Church, Lincoln, Nebraska, on Apple iTunes or on Podbean and our parish website, stpeterlincoln.com. God bless you.